We'll be reading Acts 17, verses 24 through 31. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, had made of one blood all nations of men who dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bonds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel of after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold and silver or stone, graven by the art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. I will not be continuing the study, at least this morning. I'll continue next week's on the churches in the book of Revelation. But this morning, because it's Friends and Family Day, I thought it'd be something a little bit more basic, but I think we're going to find some great depth in this. A lot of questions that people have regarding salvation and what the Scriptures have to say. So I appreciate Garrett reading for us from Acts chapter 17. And there's a lot of truth in that passage, and we're going to draw some of that out this morning in addition to some others. One of the big questions that many have today regarding the Christian faith is, can anybody find Christ? I think some people think that they like the position of ignorance. The Greek word for ignorance is agnoia. It's where we get the word for agnostic. So someone says they're agnostic. I think they mean that you can't know. But when I hear it, I hear the Greek word, I'm ignorant. So it's very true here that ignorance will not justify us. So some people have asked that question. If I'm ignorant, if I don't know God and I don't know Christ and I haven't heard of him and I haven't heard the gospel, can I be saved? I think that's a good question. It's one that we're going to answer this morning and take a look at some of these texts. So what will happen to those who never find Christ? Well, Jesus revealed this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Here on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the, and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life and those who find it are few. So we want to initially note this. Jesus said the way to salvation is hard. And few people find it. The way is narrow. And we're going to add some more scriptures to that. But I want to keep that in mind at the very beginning as we ask the question, what if someone's never heard of God and of Christ? And the Bible tells us about this. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us may have friends. We have family members that we think about. 
And we think about them and we say, well, this person's devout. They worship the true God. They pray to him continuously and they give to the needy. And so many of us would hear that and we would think automatically, well, certainly that person's saved. Certainly that person has eternal life. Well, we're going to see this morning that if you have those characteristics and you are not a Christian and you are not a baptized Christian, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you are without Christ, you are not saved. You can say, I'm a devout person, and I worship God, and I pray continuously, and I give to the needy. And we can think of a number of people out there in the world around us. In fact, these are the kind of people in the Bible who are more able and willing to receive the gospel. You know those people, you shouldn't say, well, they must be okay with God as though they're saved by their own works. They need the blood of Christ, and they need you to preach the gospel to them. We're going to talk more about this. If that seems a little strange... I'm going to show you in the Scriptures and what the Bible says. And when we get done, I think we'll agree that the way God is set up in the Bible makes good sense. So we'll often ask, are good people saved? And so are good people going to heaven? Are they going to have eternal life? Different ways of saying it. And there's, there's a false definition behind this. Because when, when you say good people, they're saying, well, the people I think are good by my standard of what is good which has a lot of self-centeredness behind it because they're saying, what I think is good by my own standards, I think this person's good, therefore they should be saved. And if you answer that question and say, you know, are good people saved? Yes, well, okay, then good people are saved, good people go to heaven, I'm a good person, my friends and family are good people. We don't need the church and we don't need Christ and we don't need anything else. And so they just walk on and go on with their life. And there's a lot of faults behind it. Their definition of what is good is coming from them. It's not coming from the Bible. In fact, if anybody called themselves good, what did Christ say? He says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. So we're going to look at that question a little bit further. We're going to try to answer that this morning. So how can God justly condemn those who are ignorant of him and Christ? How can he do this? Okay, the Bible tells us few are saved. The Bible says without Christ that you are lost. Someone might say, well, what about some secluded island somewhere? There's a people who've never heard of Jesus in some dense rainforest down in South America. There's some people there. Here's the truth right here. The Bible says that everybody can find God. Then you can see that there is a creator. And if you see that there's a creator, God will provide a way. We just read from Matthew 7, reading from Jesus' words. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7, he says, seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. And that is the truth. If you will seek God, you will find him. And we're going to look at scriptures that teach us these things this morning. Romans 1, 18 and 20. So here Paul is dealing with Gentiles. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Just stop right there. We want to look at this point by point. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You ever sinned before? Yes, I've sinned. I've done wrong. And God's wrath is against everyone who has ever done wrong. You can't just simply uh, make up for everything by doing good. I've used this illustration before. If you know a physician who has healed a thousand people, but one night he gets intoxicated and kills a family of five, because he saved a thousand people, does that allow him to get away with that? To be able to say, well, I've, I've done this. I made a mistake. 
I was careless and I killed them. And, and stand before the judge and the judge says, well, because you've healed so many people and saved so many lives, it's okay. No, we would think, no, there's, there's still got to be justice there. If we were to take it a step further and say that physician were to actually murder someone and intentionally do it, we would still say, no, he couldn't get away with that. But God's wrath comes against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Why? Because God is absolutely just. He's absolutely loving, but he's just as well. Someone who's completely just and completely loving, those two go together. Any parent who has a child and somebody does something wrong with them and they love them, even if it's one of their own children who's hurting the other one and abusing them, they're going to bring about justice. They're going to stop that because they love their children. They love all of them. God's wrath comes against all ungodliness and righteousness. Now listen here. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? That's the problem with sin in the world today. The evil that's in the world and the things that people are doing, and you might say, well, they're devout and they're generous and they give to others and they pray continuously, but they have that pet sin or that something they continue to do. Whatever they're doing, it suppresses the truth. We ourselves, we want to think, am I doing wrong? Am I, am I sinning? Am I living in an unrighteous way? You know, people see what I post on Facebook and social media. They see the way I behave and the words that come out of my mouth when I stub my toe or hit my thumb or get a paper cut at work. They know who I am. They see my example. We want to make sure that we are not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But continue reading here. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Listen to this. Paul says, speaking about the Holy Spirit, what can be known about God? That is from creation. They can know it. They can know that God exists. It says because God has shown it to them. And God's done that for all of us through his creation. He's shown us all. He is the creator, that he exists. And when you look at the world, that is the conclusion you are to come to. To logically put it is to think of it in this way. Whatever is more complex than design is most likely design. Biology is more complex than human design. Therefore, biology is designed. It's just logical and reasonable when we look at creation to see that God has put these things together and put them in order. Verse 20, he says this, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Notice this. He doesn't say, well, you can perceive them or they're hard to see. They are clearly perceived that everyone in this world can know that there is a creator and this world was created for a purpose. This says, have been clearly perceived and he says, ever since the creation of the world, ever since the very beginning, people, men, from the very beginning of creation, notice the implication there, man was there in the very beginning of creation, and that they were able to see that God exists. It says, in the things which are now been made, so they are without excuse. On the day of judgment, you can't stand before God and say, God, I didn't know you exist. I, I lived in Russia or wherever, and I didn't hear much about you or know that you exist. And I didn't look around at creation and see that you existed, but you can. In fact, we can go throughout history. And there have been philosophers in history who have come from pagan backgrounds, looked at creation and said, there has to be one God. They've done it. And it should be the reasonable conclusion for all people today as well, that we look at creation and say, God exists. So on the day of judgment, you can't say, well, I just didn't know that you existed. No, the evidence is there in creation that God exists. You can't escape it. And then we add to that, 
Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15 tells us this. He says there, Paul says, that some people by nature do the law of God. In other words, everybody. Now, you don't have the full law, but you have some kind of law of knowledge of right and wrong that God has put into you by nature. So when it comes to the day of judgment, you're still going to be found guilty before God. That's the whole point that Paul says there in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. He says, even if they're not under the law of Moses, they still have a law and they still know right from wrong and they can't even keep the little that they know about right and wrong. You look in the world today, it seems like people have less and less morals. And whatever they have, they're coming up with it on their own. And what they do come up with, they can't keep it on their own. I've asked atheists, I've asked them, can you keep your own moral standard? No, I haven't kept it perfectly. So you know that you've done wrong. Yes, I've done wrong. And the fact that they admit that they do wrong, they admit there's a moral standard, and admitting a moral standard means there's moral absolutes, and moral absolutes implies the existence of God. We'll talk more about that another time. But here we see this truth right in Scripture. The Bible says it over and over again. Romans chapter 3 focuses on this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And throughout the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, Romans 7 and verse 9, it says that at some point in our life, we come to a point where we sin and we do wrong and we are guilty before God. That's usually what we call like the age of accountability. You won't find that phrase in the Bible, but I think you can see this. There is a time when you sin, you feel guilty for it, and you know that you have done wrong. Romans 5 and verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's through Adam, and death through sin, that was the consequence of sin. You profaned against your own life. When you sin, you deserve death. You deserve separation from God. Death is not going into non-existence. James 2 and verse 26 says that death is when your spirit leaves your body. Spiritual death, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, is when you are eternally separated from God. That's the torments of hell. And then the Scripture says, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We're all guilty. And so we come to this message. We need Jesus Christ. We need someone who has conquered death, the consequence against us. Rachel and I were talking about this this week. I don't know if I understood her right, but it sounded like she was saying, she kind of asked the question. I thought it was a good question. Why didn't Jesus come and live a good life, and then at the end of his life, ascend into heaven so that at the end of our lives, instead of dying, we would just ascend as well. And I think some people might ask that question. I think that's something to think about. I don't know if she was asking that personally, but she brought it up. But she said, you know, how would you respond to somebody that, that would ask that? When we look in the Scriptures, that's not what we deserved. And Christ, even more than that, he conquered death. He died the death that we deserve. Even though he didn't deserve it and he didn't commit sin, he was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. And when he died, death could not hold him. Acts chapter 2, 22 to 24. Peter preached that in the beginning. It's a part of the gospel. Jesus is sinless, infallible. When he died, he didn't deserve it. Death could not hold him. He conquered death. Because he died that death, he rose again to new life. And Hebrews 2 explains it as well, that Jesus is without sin, and he conquered the power of the devil, and he rose from the dead. That is the gospel. That's what we're seeing here, what Christ has done for us. Now, our big question this morning is, what do we think about those that we perceive as good? We think, God, certainly that person would not have eternal condemnation. Certainly, 
that person would not go to hell. They're devout and they're generous and they're nice people. I bring you to the example of Cornelius because those descriptions that I gave to you from the very beginning are exactly how Acts describes Cornelius. I want you to read this. If you have your Bible, open to Acts chapter 10. Before I read it, I, I want to look through my observations here and present them. This is what I see from the text. You want to see if you see the same thing. I see that Cornelius was devout and he feared God with his whole family. The word feared God throughout the scriptures, throughout history, has talked about Jews, Jewish men who followed God but did not subject themselves to circumcision. If they did, they would become proselytes. If they don't, they're, they're called God-fearers. He feared God. Cornelius, he worshiped God. He was devout. His whole household followed God. And then it says Cornelius gave generously to the poor and prayed to God continually. Because he did those good things, God gave him instruction. God sent an angel to Cornelius instructing him to send for a man named Simon called Peter. Why? Go and get Peter. What's wrong with Cornelius? Isn't he saved? Isn't he okay? He needed the gospel. He needed Jesus to be saved. He needed to be baptized in Jesus' name. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, Peter preaches and he says, forgiveness is in the name of Jesus Christ. And verse 47 and 48, Peter says, how can I withhold water that he, this man be not be baptized in Jesus' name? And so that's what happened. The household was baptized in Jesus' name. That's how they received the forgiveness of sins. And we look throughout the scriptures and this is what we see. Acts chapter 11, Cornelius was not saved until... Peter came to him and preached the message of the gospel. And my pleading to you this morning is you, I know you have friends who are, you would describe as good. That might not be the best word to say it. Maybe kind or nice would be another way to put it because good implies that they are godly and following him. You might say, I have friends who are devout, that they recognize God or they believe in Jesus, but yet they have not obeyed the gospel and they haven't, they're not obeying the scriptures in full. And so when we look at this, and we see this description. Here's a man. He's devout. He feared God. He gives generously to the needy. He prays to God continuously. For those are the people that, that we need to be taking the gospel to. Those that we love and who are around us. And give them that truth. We're going to look at this a little bit further. But worshiping and fearing God does not mean that a person or his family has eternal life or that he is saved. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, the only way, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. It must be through Jesus Christ. Secondly, giving to the needy and praying will not save anyone. You know, it's kind of an implication there that if by my works or by a certain prayer, a sinner's prayer, even as some people might call it, that's not in the Bible. It does not save. Salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ. When we are baptized in his name, the Bible says, then sins are washed away. There's no salvation, even for good people, quotation, good people, who are outside of Jesus Christ. You must put Christ on. I could preach this sermon for the next three weeks and give you more and more scripture demonstrating that fact right there. You must put Christ on. You must become a Christian. You must be baptized. You must obey the gospel. You must repent, as we're going to see here in this passage we're about to read from Acts chapter 17. This is the message I think we need to have in our hearts to realize when we look around us, there are people that we love and we care about who need to hear the truth. And simply saying, this person's good is not going to make them right. On the day of judgment, they still have sins. 
And even though, like that physician I gave you the picture of, had done, healed, and saved so many people, it doesn't justify the wrong that he's done. And for us, we need someone who will die and take the penalty for us, whose blood will wash away our sins, who will atone for us and give us life, who will conquer death. Only then do we have salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. I have a few observations here from Acts 17 I want to look at before we begin to conclude. Acts 17, that God has set boundaries of every nation and time periods for all nations to seek God. No matter where you live, we saw in Romans 1, you can believe in God. Number two, that you'll stand in judgment before him. But whatever standard or morality that is remaining, if you have God's word or not, you will be judged about right and wrong. And that every nation, every, it says every one of them, all nations are able to seek God and people are able to find him. It doesn't matter if you live in Russia and you live in a rainforest in South America. God will find a way to send the gospel to you if you see that the existence of the Creator. God is not too far from anyone that He cannot, that they cannot find Him. That's what we read here in the text. We're going to look a little bit more at that. God commands all people everywhere, here's His command, to repent. That's His command. They've got to repent. They've got to change their mind. And faith is a part of that. And baptism is a part of it as well. Because God has fixed the day in which He will judge the world. And then I see this as well. God will judge the world by one man whom God gave assurance I'm raising him from the dead. And you know who that is. Listen to what Paul preached here. Acts 17 is like Acts chapter 2 for me. I could preach a month or two worth of sermons just from this text. There's so much we can draw from it. So look with me, Acts 17, verse 24 and following. Paul's preaching in Areopagus to these people, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the God who's created you, he's saying. And he made from man, one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. He knows the time periods where they're going to live and the, how long it's going to be. And he says, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He knows the boundaries of their nation. God has set it. He orders those things. And look at verse 27. And he's put these things in place that they should seek God. That every nation is able to seek God no matter where they're at. He calls all of them to repentance. And he says, and perhaps that they will feel their way toward him and find him. Not only are they able to seek God, they're able to find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And Paul does something interesting here. He's talking to pagans. It's different philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans. And then he quotes from their own poets. He's, Paul's an educated man. He does that. He says in verse 28, he quotes from one of their poets. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. They recognize one supreme God. And many of the Stoics saw that. Platonic philosophers saw that there must be one God. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In other words, we came from God. You should know that God exists. You should know these things. You're not far from him. But listen here, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Some of them rejected this. They scoffed at the resurrection. Some of them came to believe. What Paul was saying agreed and aligned up with much of what they had learned, and now it had come to mean so much more. And those individuals became Christians. And we can read that there in Acts 17. The truth is there is only one way to salvation. When the apostles stood before the Jewish Supreme Court in Acts chapter 4, Peter professed this to the Jewish Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the only way. It's in the name of Christ. Even in Acts 2 and verse 38, we saw that baptism was into Jesus' name. Acts chapter 10, we read in verse 47, 48, that baptism in water is in Jesus' name. The forgiveness of sins is in the name of Christ by his authority and his alone. That's why the name of Christ matters. We see this as well, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, that God wants all people to be saved. There's some people today that say, well, there's the elect, and they're the only ones that are set apart. What did the scriptures say? The Bible says God wants all to be saved. Everyone's able to find God. They're able to seek God. They're able to be saved. And if you have loved ones and friends and those around you who you see that they, they pray and that they're devout and that they give to others, they need to hear the truth if they don't have it already. They need to know Christ. They need to know what the Scriptures say. We need to be studying with those people, with those individuals. We need to be studying with all because all people can be saved. Listen to this. Peter talks about God's promise here, his patience with humanity. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's talking about the destruction and the end of the world and judgment day. God's not slow. What's he doing then? Well, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The fact that you have heard the gospel is God's patience and love for you to give it to you. And it's for you to seek him and to obey him and to follow him. He's giving you the opportunity to repent. Some people might say after the end of that, well, where is God's love in all this? How is this right that God does this? If you still ask that question, I encourage you to look at Romans chapter 3, the whole chapter there. And in Romans 3, the Scriptures say there, yes, we've all sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. And that God's law has come in so that none of us can stand before Him on the day of judgment and say that we're just and that God owes us salvation. And then it says here, because of that, because no man can live a perfect life, morally perfect life, the sinless life, God sent His Son because He loved us, because God's just and God's righteous, and He has made a way for us to be saved. And that's the gospel message that we need to take to the world. Romans 10 says, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear without a preacher? And when Paul says that in Romans 10, he's not saying that it's the preacher's job to tell everybody. He's saying it's our job as Christians to preach, to proclaim, to teach, for people to hear the gospel and to be saved. That's what it takes. It's you tell the truth, that you tell them, I believe in Christ. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe only through him and in his name is their salvation. And what will happen to those who never found Christ? We've gone to the question that we started with in the very beginning. John chapter 3 Jesus himself says this. He says, those who do not believe in me are condemned already. Those who don't come to believe in me, it's because, and the reason they reject me is because they don't want their sins exposed. 
John 3, start in verse 16. Follow the words in red right there down, and you will read the words of Christ and what he says. Those are the words of Jesus. However, Jesus also said in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No reason for you to perish today. You can come to faith in Christ. So we ask this question, who are the few that are saved? The Bible makes it clear. Colossians 2 does. It's through the gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection. It's those who have died to sin, those who have been buried with Christ in baptism, and those who have risen to a new life. Those are the ones who will come to eternal life. Jesus declared in Luke 9 and verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. You try to save your life and save yourself, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The only way to have salvation is to lose this life that you're in now and give it completely over to Christ. I have an exhortation here for Christians. And, and as we look at this message, it's your challenge this morning. Do not think anyone is saved because of how devout and generous they are. Dedicate yourself to the study of God's Word. Because some of you might be this morning saying, I don't know what I would say, what scriptures I would point to. That means you need to study. That's why we have our Bible classes. That's why we meet on Wednesday night. That's why we'll be meeting tonight, Sunday night. We want to study these scriptures. We want to write them down. We want to memorize them. We want to have something that we can take to others. We want to know the gospel in its most basic, most core form so that we can turn to others and say, this is what Jesus did. He died, he was buried, and he conquered death. He rose from the dead. And you've got to emulate and do the same thing and imitate him to have eternal life. And I want you to have it. And I love you, and God loves you. That's why he sent Christ. So I challenge you this morning to dedicate yourself to the study of God's Word so you can help those that you love to be saved. Thirdly, make yourself available to everyone to talk about Christ. Sometimes it might not always be the best situation, but you can always find an opportunity to pray with somebody, to talk to them about their convictions and why they believe what they believe, and to say to them, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. And you can ask them, one of the things that I've learned is that you can ask someone about how they came to follow God, and you can say, you know, I did it a different way. I found this in Scripture. I saw this in Scripture. I saw salvation. And you can turn it back to them by asking them about what they do believe. And then you just want to tell them, if the study doesn't go further than that and the discussion doesn't go further, just say, anytime you want to talk more, you want to talk about Christ, we want to do that. Because the world needs us to preach. Lastly, as our invitation and exhortation to the unsaved, Christ taught that one must believe in who he is. These are the words of Christ right here I'm about to show you as we finish up. Christ warned in John 8 and verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, if you don't believe that I am the Christ, the Son of God, that I am God come in the flesh, you will die in your sins. There's no amount of praying or generosity or devotion that will overcome that fact. And so many people have twisted the gospel and said Jesus was just a wise man who taught these things. No, he was more than that. He was God in the flesh, and he rose from the dead. He is our Lord. Jesus taught that one must confess Christ for Jesus to confess us before God. He says that in Matthew 10. He also says it. it's recorded in the gospel of Luke that you need to acknowledge and confess him openly. So you've got to believe. You've got to confess Jesus said he came into this world to call sinners to repentance. And he said, if you don't repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke chapter 5, 32. Luke 13, 3 through 5. Jesus did all these things because he loved humanity. 
This is the way to salvation. You've got to believe, and you've got to confess, and you've got to repent. And then when he rose from the dead, this is what he preached and declared. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. If you need to obey the gospel this morning, we encourage you to do so. To my church family, you know those around you who need to hear the truth. Tell it to them. Tell it to them again. Keep that door open. Always let them know that you're willing to talk about it. This morning, if you need to obey the gospel, you need prayers, you need encouragement, please come right now while we stand and while we sing.